So welcome to another edition of Passive Attack, the Asset First podcast, bear market special episode. Steve, we had a correction on the markets um, only a couple of days ago, but now it seems that we've, we're down more than 20%, so that's a bear market. Are these just words or does it specifically mean something um, for investors that we've actually entered a bear market? No, I, I don't think it means anything per se. I mean, uh, just because you pass the 20% mark doesn't, um, doesn't have any special significance. I mean, it, my lexicon of investing uh, or lexicon of, of market falls goes something like this. So there's a, a 10% fall is, is a correction. 20% fall is a bear market. And then you, you can invoke all kinds of descriptions for anything worse than that. So I, I tend to call something that, that breaches the 30% mark a severe downturn in markets or significant downturn. But the thing about corrections is that they're very frequent. It depends which market you're looking at and, and which time frame you're going to look at as well. But corrections are, are, are really very frequent. I, I expect them with a frequency of sort of once every year, maybe every 18 months. I mean, we, we've had a, since the 2008 crash, we've had a reasonably reasonably stable period where where that sort of frequency hasn't been matched. But a, but a, a correction ought not to raise anybody's eyebrows at all if you're investing in the equity market you know that those, those are the kinds of uh, moves that happen very frequently and often with very limited explanation too a uh, bear market is uh, it sounds much more severe but actually a bear market is it, it, it is quite frequent as well so I, I i would expect a bear market to occur every sort of Maybe we've entered this one. Years. We've entered this one very quickly, though. Haven't mm. we? Is that it seems feels quite unusual to me? I, I know I always tend to forget the last bear market, and the <laughs> next one's a real surprise when it comes back, and it makes me scared. But um, this one looks it's quite vicious the way it's come in. I feel. Yeah, I mean the, the previous bear market happened um, over a, a over a, a, I think about eight weeks or so. So towards the end of two thousand and eighteen. Uh, this one's happened pretty quickly. I mean, this one, you can explain why this one has happened pretty quickly. It is that the markets are having to absorb some pretty hard facts about the uh, the, the extent of the virus uh, globally. Um, if you go back a couple of weeks, it, it, it looked like it may or may be contained in China. but Or at least I, I think the markets were lulled into a, into a sense that it might be contained in China. Um, yeah. uh, but of course, it's... It, it, you know, the rapid transmission outside of China is, is is a hard fact for the market to adjust to. And and there are some some reasonably hard consequences for the global economy because of it, and the markets are having to factor that in. So this is, I think the market is reacting quickly to what is a quickly evolving um, yeah. uh, situation. So I, I, I don't think that it's dramatic, but... Uh, and, and certainly the pace that the swings in terms of price movements does bring with it a whole new set of risks. There are some sort of second round risks that we watch out for. If the big swings in, in prices lead to some dysfunction in the markets, then uh, there are problems that might have more severe consequences in the longer term than than the virus might have. So there are certainly some second round effects which are elevated in terms of risk um, by the severity and the, the, the speed of the decline. But I think the decline and the severity we, we can explain uh, reasonably well in terms of the information that's evolving about the virus. And at this level of, of drop that we've, we've now got to very quickly, is a global recession now priced in at this level, a minor recession? It is certainly true that some bad news is, bad news is priced in. 
So certainly we've had um, some significant downgrades in terms of forecasts so from the IMF. Um, it, it looks like the IMF have downgraded world growth a little bit and said that if, if things continue the way they are, they'll downgrade growth to such an extent that, that probably represents a, a global recession. So a global recession wouldn't be a decline in output growth uh, because of the rapid increase in uh, in population and things like that. And any sort of growth rate below 2%, I think is, is fair. I mean, it's, it's a moot point, but it, it's fair to consider uh, global growth below 2% to be something like a recession. Um, certainly, I, I, think, I think the IMF are going to get close to, to, to downgrading growth below that stage. And we've just had what flashed across my screen this morning. I think IHS market have, have downgraded global growth to something like 1.7%. So the market, uh, and the market's down on top of that. So that it, I reckon it's fair to say that the market has priced in in uh, a shortish global recession at this stage, although it's really difficult to infer from equity prices and even from bond prices the, the full extent of any decline in, in global growth. But I, I think it's fair to say that a, a global recession is, is broadly expected and um, it, therefore it's fair to expect it to be priced into the markets at this stage. What isn't priced in is the extent of that recession. I, I think the more important aspect is going to be the duration of the recession um, rather than the actual extent. If it's a short, sharp recession, I think the implications for that are, are less severe than if it's a, a sort of rumbling longer term recession. Given the nature of, of um, a, an expected peak in the virus in, in the next eight weeks or so, I, I think that does indicate that we may get a, a short, sharp recession rather than a long, rumbling one. Okay, but so, that, I mean that's so, I mean that's probably contingent upon no none of these sort of second round risks that I was talking about. So in, in, in two thousand and eight, for example, was all about all about uh, second round risks. It was a dysfunction in market. It's called the credit crunch for a reason. But those are those have severe and lasting impacts for the economy. If we're limited to just the evolution of this virus. Uh, and it's it and it doesn't pop up again uh, next year. Then uh, I think we're looking like a um, we're looking like a, a relatively short, sharp recession. So if that is the case, it wouldn't be ridiculous if, for example, I'd chosen to buy some shares yesterday. No, not at all. I mean, I, it's. I, I mean, if you if you're asking me if if you bought those shares yesterday, are they gonna are you gonna see an immediate return from those shares? Um, I, I haven't got the faintest idea, but, but what I do know is that buying shares yesterday, uh, you did so at a significant discount to where they were uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and they may be trading at a significant discount in a couple of weeks' time, but um, uh, the facts are that you've purchased those shares at a, uh, a, a, at a better time than you had opportunity yeah. to prior. I mean, this is the one of the things that has characterised the market for risky assets of late. Uh, and of late, I think you know you could talk about the last couple of years. Uh, is that the amount of opportunity that there is in those markets to, to pick up uh, what is an un, unambiguous level of value has been really, really scarce. I happen to think that UK equities were one of the few places where you could see and um, understand and explain a reasonable amount of value in, in stock prices. And, but, I mean, there's a reason for that. It was, you know, the parliamentary paralysis and, and the whole Brexit. Anybody remember Brexit? It feels like no. a long time ago now. But um, that drove, that, that was uncertainty. Uh, and the uncertainty manifested itself in, in better valuations in terms of UK stocks. Uh, and then, of course, the general election in, in last year in December was probably 
the trigger point to realise those those evaluations. Coronavirus aside, so hmm. with uncertainty comes opportunity for sure, um, and and was beginning to see some reasonable opportunities uh, uh, now. But but un- underneath Corona, we've got this oil price war. And we've still got the continued uncertainty of what the UK's trading um, position is going to be with the rest of the world. So is, are these clouds, the corona clouds, getting in the way of other fundamental problems and headwinds for us? So there are always uh, uh, problems that are in geopolitics. There are, uh, you've got a, a very weak coalition and a leadership challenge in Germany. There, there are all kinds of risks. This is, these are the normal things that we face, though. You know, the old adage that markets don't like uncertainty is is kind of true. Markets are pricing in uncertainty. Markets fall when uncertainty peaks, but there is always uncertainty, and that's the reason we have markets. Markets are are by far the best mechanism that we've uh, managed to develop for for pricing things in conditions of uncertainty. So, I, I mean, the good thing when I was talking earlier about sort of watching out for second round effects. What appears apparent at this moment in time is that in spite of the really big drops, I mean, we had the, the circuit breaker on the New York Stock Exchange triggered just the other day, and it didn't, as far as we're aware at this stage, there are no lingering implications from that. There are, the, you know, it doesn't appear to me that systemic risks are, are peaking because of the big shifts in markets. Markets appear to be functioning reasonably well. Um, so um, that, that's the good news in all of this. So turning now to bonds, yesterday we saw the base rate cut in the UK um, and bond yields actually rose. That surprised me. Did it surprise you? That They'd moved down on the expectation that um, rate cuts were coming. Rate cuts have indeed come. But I, I think the markets are, are also expecting some um, some more quantitative easing measures too, which... Yeah. Uh, which were, it, it depends how you interpret quantitative easing. So that it, the Bank of England did an awful lot more than just reduce interest rates. It wasn't just the Monetary Policy Committee that, that acted. It was um, all the other committees that the Bank of England is involved in. So, And, and cheap loans to, to banks and things like that. The, the system is reasonably awash with liquidity. But I think the markets are anticipating some form of quantitative easing uh, or, or some increase in quantitative easing as well. So, yeah. But maybe that, that'll come in the, at the meeting on the, on the 26th. So... <laughs> So yeah, you know, yields haven't moved up consistently. They're back down again, and and, and they'll they'll wax and wane uh, with the equity markets, uh, equity market movements. I mean, the bond market is doing two things at the moment. It, it it is trying to interpret where inflation might be in the future, uh, and as a sort of subset of that, where monetary policy is going. And then on the other side, we're seeing huge increased demand from from people that were hitherto holding risky assets. So it, it's difficult to interpret bond yields only uh, from the context of, of where the economy might be going. There's, there's an awful lot of uh, increased demand for safe haven assets as well, which is sort of interfering with, uh, uh, with, with, with those expectations too. So, okay. um, so that, that, that's part of the reason. So for years, we've been having the discussion about why, why are we still holding bonds? And the answer is they're the insurance against unexpected recessions or unexpected shocks to the market. And they've played that part perfectly again in the last couple of weeks delivering strong returns but from where they are now and yes despite that slight rise in yields yesterday the yields are incredibly low and so therefore the the upside potential in or protection that they can now offer us from here is minimal 
unless we go to negative interest rates, which I, I don't think um, the Bank of England or the Fed have really got any appetite to do. So is there any argument there to be actually reducing our exposure to bonds for existing investors who've just taken these, these profits or have these profits in their, in their portfolios? There are certainly some legitimate reasons why you might reduce bond holdings at this moment in time. You, you, you know, might do so simply to rebalance and take effect, uh, take advantage of the profits that you've got in bonds to to buy riskier assets at depressed prices. So that's, I mean, that that would be the single most legitimate one. The, the argument about low yields is is slightly more complicated. For a start, you don't get a sort of one and one payoff as yields get lower as they approach zero. Uh, you get an accelerated difference in 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 price gains. So, it's it's the difference between say uh, a drop in interest rates from six percent to four percent sounds quite dramatic, but actually the the drop in interest rates from half percent to zero percent, and certainly at the longer end of the yield curve, has an accelerated impact on on prices as you get there. So, um, so it's not a linear representation, uh, not a linear relationship between yields and price for a start. So you do get an accelerated. Uh, return as yields get lower and lower. So, I mean, that, that's one reason. I, I think you're right about uh, negative yields. I, I, I mean, negative yields will be a function of the well, will mostly be a function of the demand for safe haven assets, as opposed to monetary policy. Certainly in the anglosphere, um, I don't think there's any uh, appetite uh, at the Federal Reserve for negative interest rates. Certainly at the longer, well. I don't think there's an appetite for a negative Fed funds rate. I don't think there's an appetite for a negative 10-year yield. It, it, we've had some negative yields in the intermediate range, but and I think they could be tolerated, but I, I, I certainly think that the, the Fed will want to maintain a positive yield slope between the very short-term rates and at least the 10-year rate. Now, it, I think that's what it wants to sustain over a period of time, but I think it will tolerate a little bit of negativity for a short period of time. Like I said, because the markets will be reacting to what what risky assets are doing as well, so it's it's difficult to disentangle. I think it's the same case in the UK too. I I don't think there's any appetite of the Monetary Policy Committee to send bank rate into negative rates. So I think you know maybe. So where are we now? We're at twenty five basis points. Maybe they'll take it down to ten basis points or something. I definitely think negative interest rates are aren't something. Certainly at the sort of ten year rate upwards, that's not something that the central banks will want. Uh, certainly to maintain. I, but but we are reaching the limits of monetary policy. The, the next phase clearly is, is fiscal policy. Yeah, so assuming we don't go negative, how much further can rates fall? Well, they can still fall 100%, I guess. <laughs> they, they can, yeah. Yeah, okay. So equities off hugely. For people who've got risk appetite, maybe it's time to start putting a little bit of that risk on the table. But with the valuations much lower... Do you think now that the anticipated return on UK equities on, say, the next 10 years is, it has risen as a result of this? Surely it must have. Yeah, it, it has yeah. hugely. I mean, it's it, it's interesting. The, it really depends on how you're going to view things. So it, I tend to default to a sort of discounted cash flow measure, um, which I try and apply to broad indexes and things like that, or, or broad baskets of equities. But there are a load of assumptions built into those, and, and those assumptions are flawed because I, I don't have a perfect vision, of it, even a half-perfect vision of what might come. But the shares are effectively the, the present value of, of a future stream of earnings. 
you have to try and figure out what that future stream of earnings might be or, or profits in the form of dividends or in, the, in that kind of thing. So, so how the economy grows in the future, certainly that rate has come down. But alongside the rate of, of, of how fast the economy might grow in, in the next few years, the discount rate has also come down. So, and that has an implication for other things as well. At, at the same time, you might get an increase in the risk premium. It's certainly fair to expect alongside prices to come down an increase in, the, in, in, in expected risk premium. It is because investors demand a higher risk premium that equity markets are falling at this moment in time. So, so all three of those elements sort of play off into one another. Look at it this way. Let's say um, you can buy a safe asset, which is a British government bond, and let's say it's going to yield you half a percent. I don't think anybody expects the British government to default on that over the next 10 years, no matter how bad this virus gets. So let's let, let's say that's a fairly safe uh, investment. You can get 0.5% each year for the next 10 years. That's the very safest form of investment. Or subsequently, you could buy something riskier, like um, a basket of shares represented by the FTSE 100 or something like that. How much more per year would you like to receive on that basket of equities compared to the 0.5%, uh, compared with the 0.5% that um, that gilts offer? And I would say, well, you know, about 4.5% is fair in normal conditions. Okay, maybe we demand a little bit more at this moment in time. But if you add the 4.5% risk premium onto the half a percent you're going to get from the risk-free investment, then that's a, 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 that's a minimum acceptable return of 5%. If you go back 10 years uh, or 20 years, maybe when interest rates were 5%, you'd still demand a risk premium of 4.5%. So you would expect, uh, you would want to get 9.5% from equities. But the conditions that we're in today, because interest rates are so low, and if we accept that we're going to have just a static risk premium, which is this 4.5%, then your minimum acceptable return is about 5%. It's a bit more complicated than this, but this is, you know, this is fine. And when I apply current discount rates, when I apply uh, that level of risk premium, and when I apply a relatively cautious outlook for uh, nominal growth in, in, in the UK, then I, I get an expected return of something approaching 7.8%. Or, or, yeah. The point is that, I think where we are today in terms of prices, uh, they offer the, the potential over a reasonable period of time, 10 years, to provide us with a return which is more than commensurate with the risks that are involved in doing so. Now, that doesn't mean that, that, that tomorrow those, that return might be even higher, but I'm reasonably confident that UK equities offer good value today in particular. I mean, I also think it's true of US equities. I think it's true of Japanese equities and European equities too. It's it's just much more, you know, I was, I was much, it was true of UK equities before the coronavirus knocked 20% off the, off the market. So um, it is, it, it's certainly more true today. Yeah. So for quite a long time now, we've held a marginally defensive position on our portfolios, principally underweight UK equities, overweight corporate bond is now the time to actually not necessarily go back to neutral but at least start to uh, shift that back in favor of favor of risky assets yeah i think so the problem with holding a marginally defensive position is it's, it's not something that you want to do for a very long period of time because it's easy to forget in in current market conditions but risky assets tend to pay off in the long term uh, and holding an underweight position there relative to your neutral position sort of over a very long period of time will lock in lower returns 
So when you're holding a defensive position, it, it, it is wise to look for the opportunity to get back to a more neutral position. It's, it's a slightly different question about when you subsequently take a higher risk position. That's a, a, so the move involved from defensive to neutral is a much easier move to make than subsequently from neutral to more aggressive. Certainly in, in, in my philosophy, the, the, the kind of opportunities that, that, would, that would encourage an overweight position in risky assets, they don't occur very often at all. Um, and I'm not sure we're quite there yet, but uh, my tendency is more towards neutral now than it, than it has been for, for some time. Yeah. And, but that's partly a reflection of, of a general feeling that holding a defensive position is not something I want to do for a very long period of time. It's, it's, it's more a reflection of that than it is. I'm not calling a market bottom here. It, who knows? It might be a market bottom. I've no idea. That's not what I'm trying to do. For the sort of same reason that I think you're not unwise to buy shares. I, I don't think it's an unwise decision to, to hold more of a neutral position. For individual investors, the most important thing is whether they hold an asset allocation which is appropriate given their you know, time frame, their capacity for loss, their financial planning objectives, all those kind of things. That governs your your broad exposure. That, that governs your your sort of neutral exposure to, to equities. If you overlay what we're doing in terms of asset allocation, we've taken a slightly defensive position compared with that. Uh, so we would be just moving back into a more neutral position, which which so long as investors are holding the appropriate position in the first place, is just is still going to be appropriate for them. We're not we're not we're certainly not taking it into positions which are which are more risky at this stage. Okay. And I think that dovetails into the, the final question, which was uh, um, if clients are holding the appropriate um, level of risk in their portfolios that suits them, but then life gets in the way and they come and they're asking for um, capital withdrawals to be made from these portfolios. Is it therefore worth considering not taking those withdrawals across the board, but maybe focusing more on the fixed interest side? Because by doing that, we're, we're naturally taking profits on things that are holding profits right now. And we're shifting more from a defensive towards a neutral position by, by, by shaving down the fixed interest element. Uh, yes, is, is, is the answer. I mean, there are, you, have to be, you have to be clever about how you're approaching disinvestments at this moment in time. Now is a, is a better time for investments than disinvestments. Um, hmm. And certainly a blind approach taking money a, a, across a portfolio like that is, is I, I think you're better placed just having a think about it. There are pockets of high liquidity inside the portfolios. Those are uh, in, the, in the form of sort of short-dated gear. Anything short-dated and, and, and government-backed is, is, has a very, very high level of liquidity and has been unaffected, if not uh, benefited, from the current conditions. That's a, that's a perfect place to, to take um, contingency income from as well and, and try and protect the... Uh, who knows? You know, if the markets are down another 20%, then today would have proved a reasonable time to take, you know, to take money from risky assets and, and maybe less reasonable from longer dated bonds. But but certainly short dated gilts offer offer you a a really highly liquid, relatively unaffected bucket of money from which you can you can feed income liabilities for sure. I mean that's the that's the reason it's in there. Shorter dated gilts also have a, a much more limited impact in in protecting the downside as we move forward. So longer dated gilts are going to get this bigger increase in in price if equity markets decline further and interest rates come down shorter dated gilts are going to be relatively 
relatively unaffected by by that mechanism. That they'll go up a wee bit as interest rates come down, but you know, there's much more limited uh, scope yeah. for their diversification benefits. Okay, thanks, Steve. Um, so, to summarise, um, the term, turmoil we are seeing in equity markets now uh, is likely to continue for some time, but it is now starting to present us with some attractive buying opportunities for long-term investors. That's not to say that um, we've reached the bottom of the market. Further falls probably are likely from here. But long-term investors who can withstand some risk may benefit from adopting a slightly less defensive stance going forwards. Goodbye and thank you for listening.